All right, we are going to be in the book of Acts tonight, predominantly, not only, but predominantly Acts. Welcome to week two of historical theology. Last week we gave the overview, um, and your assignment was to come with open hearts tonight. That was your homework assignment, so I hope you have. Um, But also, I want to open with prayer that we would uh, ask God to open our minds to help us think well and to help us grow in our love for Him and uh, in our living for Him, even as we walk through uh, the way that He has worked through the church. God, thank You that You, in Your grace, have called a people to Yourself. And that, God, that You have called us into a relationship with You marked by peace rather than hostility, marked by acceptance and approval rather than condemnation. And God, would you use us as your people that we would manifest your glory, that others might know you and grow in you and be a part of your global church as well. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. A little opening question for here. um, And we'll see how much discussion we have on it. So theology... And missiology. Anybody know what missiology? Any non Anybody that hasn't gone to seminary know what missiology means? Would that be to do with missions? It is. It is the study of missions. Good job, Miss Nancy. All right, it's the study of missions, and theology is the study of God. Okay, so the study of God and the study of missions. Okay, so when we look at the New Testament and the church. We think about, and we've done systematic theology. We haven't done systematic missiology yet. Um, We are going to look at some mission stuff in a future semester of Growth Institute. But there's a relationship between theology and missiology. Anybody want to explore out loud, how do those two relate to each other? I think about it just initially is what you believe versus what you do. Okay. A little bit. The result of the one study God, then you'd want to have a mission. Okay. Yep, that, that is a good answer, particularly when we consider that we have a missionary God. So to be like a missionary God is to be on mission. Okay. How else do theology and missiology relate together? Okay, so to be good at missiology, you need to be good at theology. It's more the study of missions in its, on its own, um, or the discipline of missions, just like theology is a discipline that has application. I'm going to tell you that missiology, not in all cases, but in many ways, missiology makes us do theology. Theology makes us do missiology, to go to Lonnie's point, because as we study the missionary God, we are moved to missions. But also, I think, and I'm going to try to show you tonight from the early church, that as the church does missions, it also is going to begin to engage in theology in some new ways. Okay. So I want to show you that from Acts as we go tonight. So, track one there. Other intro question. When do we first see the church in the Bible? Okay, Pentecost, Acts. Anybody else? Are you talking about any church or? or Yeah, any church. But don't they talk about temples and things like that? We do have temples in the Old Testament. But it. Acts 3 or 6, where the other disciples are trying to figure out what to do post Jesus, so they're sitting with a group of them praying to God, trying to figure out where to go next. I mean, that, in essence, is a church. 
Yeah, to, to some degree, you've got them deciding in Acts chapter 1, what, what's next? Okay, gathering in a room, upper room, but they weren't calling it a church at that point. All right, so one thing, uh, as many of you know, I teach, uh, I teach Old Testament for Liberty University online. I get a couple of hundred students over the course of the year. I teach the same course, uh, about five to six sections, about 20 to 25 students in it. Uh, all year long, I've got all the prompts memorized. I've seen every response that's possible, like, you know, to these same essays. They haven't changed the course until this semester for like five years. So I've seen a bunch of stuff. Just about every semester, I will have a student uh, that will make a remark about the church in the Old Testament. And I think I've quit correcting them at this point because I've realized it's probably uh, a moot point to actually correct them that the church was not birthed in the Old Testament. We have Israel in the Old Testament, and we have the people of God, uh, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, the church, the people of God in the New Testament. The church does not replace Israel, but we do not have a church in the Old Testament. So none of you made me say that to your response or saw my facial reaction if you were to give me, you know, that. Miss Nancy is very correct in terms of a place of worship, which is often what we think of as the church, um, that there is a temple and a place of worship in the Old Testament, but we do not have the church per se. Jesus actually deals with the church, though. Um, so go ahead and open your Bible. You're going to have a Bible open the majority of the rest of the evening. Jesus deals with the church in Matthew chapter 16. And then again chapter 18. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. The first time in the New Testament, although Matthew was not the earliest book written in the New Testament, but the first occasion in the Gospels that we have the word church. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He uses the phrase here, this is the first occasion in the gospel of church. And it's based, it's not Peter himself, it's Peter's confession of Christ upon which the church is built. Um, Peter is not the rock upon which the entire church hinges. Um, Peter is important though, but Peter's confession of Christ, Christ as Lord, is the rock upon the churches being built. But he did build it through Peter and the apostles. And then he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ at that point. Now, I want to read those last three verses because of their relationship to the church in Matthew chapter 18. So hang a page to the right or use your phone and navigate to Matthew 18. Church in the Gospels. Church according to Jesus. Was to be built, his church built upon Christ as Lord. His church to be built in a way by the apostles' teaching and the gathering of the saints to do something with sin. Verse 15. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That should sound familiar from a few minutes ago. 
Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on anything about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So this is in relation to church discipline and believers helping other believers or helping others work through what it is to pursue a relationship of holiness in practical ways. That binding and loosing there is the authority given to the apostles and the apostolic teaching through the word on what is sin and what is not sin. Church, according to Jesus, was a place to be marked and built upon the confession of Christ as Lord and to be a place that took God's call to holiness seriously. But we don't see the language of church used for Jesus and his gathering with his apostles. We never see that language being used of Jesus and his disciples. Okay, now if there was ever a group serious about holiness, okay, those guys were pretty serious about that. But the fact that the gospels never use church for Jesus and the God, I mean, they were, accountable to each other, growing in the things of the Lord, learning the things of God, I think is important through what it doesn't call Jesus and the disciples, but what it does call the people of God after Pentecost, after they are gathering together, confessing Christ as the risen Lord. So I want to go over to the earliest usages of church in the New Testament. And we think about Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. But realistically there, though we talk about Acts 2, and I don't know how many times I have seen um, the message or heard the message on the marks of the healthy church from Acts 2, 42 through 47. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of the bread, prayers, and these are the things that we need to be doing to return to the early church. And this is, I would still say, it is the founding of the church here in Acts chapter 2 through the gift of the Spirit. We're not seeing language, explicit language for church. How was it used? And how do you address the... Christ is addressing church before it's really, there's a church. Right. So those two things. Yep. So the, the, the Greek word for church that we would normally use, ekklesia, um, means a gathered assembly. Um, it's a secular word with, loaded with new meaning in the New Testament. Um, so it wouldn't be like out of bounds. I, guess, I mean, nothing's out of bounds for Christ to know and use um, and define. Uh, there is some discussion as to whether or not Christ even used the word church there um, or whether that's kind of an anachronism with Christ's work with the disciples, apostles in AD 33 um, when you really don't have the church per se founded until later in Acts um, because Matthew's writing a couple of decades later reflecting on that. Um, did And was that an exact quote of Christ or was Christ referring to the gathering of believers and didn't use the Greek word, you know, is Jesus speaking Greek? Um, anyways, so, or what is going on there? Um, is that helpful? Okay. Acts 2.42, you do have them gathering together. You have them selling things, having things in common, attending the temple. They're still gathering at the temple at this point in Acts. Breaking bread in homes glad and generous hearts, praising God, favor with the people. The Lord is adding to their number day by day, those being saved. Um, As we walk through the book of Acts, we continually see God, the missionary God, through his spirit, calling people unto himself. We get over to Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Can I get a volunteer to read all 11 of those verses, please? Jump in for me, if you will. If you want to take on half of them and let somebody else take on the second half, that's fine too. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But 
Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the lamb for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. There's your first use of church in the book of Acts, not actually at Pentecost. But it assumes that you already know what the church is. You know, as a, as a professor reading through, I'm like, this is a key term. Why did you not define your key terms in chapter one? Like... That always goes in chapter one. You define your key terms at the beginning. And clearly church is about to be a key term in the book of Acts. But Acts 5.11 is your first usage of church in the book of Acts. The whole church had great fear for good reason. If you're going to drop dead when you tell a lie, there's a good reason to fear. So, But it doesn't say, and this became the church. So obviously, in Luke's mind, the author of Acts, the church existed prior to the, the death of Ananias and Sapphira. But we just don't know when exactly. So that's why I would be comfortable saying Acts chapter 2, um, that at Pentecost, through the spirit that you have the birth of the church, I'm comfortable saying that. If you want to say that it was in Acts chapter 1 with the disciples gathered together praying, okay, um, so I could be okay with that. Um, I think it's going to be post-resurrection of Christ, whether or not you want to go post-ascension, I don't know. Um, but we don't really have, like the Bible is silent on this. So we could, we could do the scholarly thing, like strain out a gnat and swallow a camel and debate exactly when the church was started and develop position papers. But if the Bible doesn't see fit to, def- to tell us exactly when it started, then I think we'd be better off to just stick with, hey, there is a church by now. And I want you to see two other occasions about the church, because we have the whole church and whatever that's described as in chapter five, likely the Jerusalem center, okay, with Ananias and Sapphira. Flip over to chapter eight. Verse one, I'm going to ask you in verse one about the location of the church. This one's an easy one, okay? Saul approved of his execution, being Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So where was the church in chapter 8, verse 1? Okay. So now we have the church used in a local sense. Earlier, it's unclear. I would suggest that at that point it was a local church. But here it's definitely the church of Jerusalem. Let's read verse 3, though. Okay, devout devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church... And entering house after house, he dragged up men and women and committed them to prison. Though we just came from Jerusalem and the church at Jerusalem, I think that the fact that later we're going to see that Saul's headed to Damascus, I think there's a high likelihood that we've always already got here in chapter 8, Saul persecuting not just a local one place. We don't have just a church at Jerusalem. We're beginning to develop church at Jerusalem, Damascus, etc., so church, that's where it starts. And almost as soon as you have the word church in the Bible, you have a problem in the church in the Bible. Okay, Acts chapter 5, there was a, I mean, you could say there was a problem with Ananias and Sapphira, but there becomes a bickering within the church. I don't think anybody was going to argue that day within the church because they knew the results of defying God on that day. But by the time we get to chapter 6, 
in Acts, we have a bickering and a problem within the church. So flip back a page, Acts chapter 6. And what we're going to do now for the next few minutes is talk about the problems in the church and how they were handled. Hey, Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Will somebody read for me? In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained about the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, great, I get all the names, Nicanor, Timon. That's Timon. Timon and Pumbaa. (laughs) Okay. Awesome. Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Okay. We're going to come back to this passage later and talk about something else. But what was the problem that they quickly began to encounter as a church? Taking care of the elderly. Taking care of the elderly. Okay. And it was the Greek-speaking, the Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews, and the Jew or the Hebrew-speaking Jews, and they felt like, hey, we're getting some people neglected in our service and in our taking care of others. We're not handling this well. So, they began to work through a problem. Now, I'm not going to suggest that that on its own is theology, but the engaging of doing mission or being in the growth, in this case, of growth of a church is resulting in problems that needed solved. And that's going to happen again in Acts chapter 11. So, it's Flip on over to Acts 11. As we go through theology, missiology, the growth of the church from AD 33 to 100, and the theology that they dealt with. This one becomes a theological matter. Okay. Uh, let me get a volunteer verses 1 through 9, please. I heard somebody over here earlier that was going to go for it, if you don't mind. I don't think there's any names. If there are, we can just call them all Timon. 1 through 9? Yes, please. Now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? But Peter began and explained to them in order, I was in the city of Joppa, is that right? Mm-hmm. Praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something descending like a great sheet let down from heaven at four corners and it came down to me I looking at it closely I observed animals and beasts and both prey and reptiles and birds of the air and I heard a voice saying to me rise Peter kill and eat but I said no Lord for nothing common or unclean has ever been through my mouth but the voice answered a second time from heaven what God has cleansed you must not call a common this happened three times and all was drawn up again in heaven and at the very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, in, in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. Mm-hmm. Uh, should I stop there? You can continue if you want to, all the way through the end of 18. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brethren also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift as he gave to me when he gave to us when we were believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? 
when they heard this, they were silenced, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance unto life. Thank you, Ms. Nancy. All right, so what's the situation or controversy that's occurring in this text? Kill and eat. Okay. And the Jews had such a strict uh, control of what they ate and didn't eat. Mm-hmm. And so Peter's first word, I, didn't, I never ate anything right. I wasn't supposed to eat. Yep, so this is a, a violation of the Old Testament law of what was clean. In my mind, a pig is coming down from heaven. Um. Separation between Gentiles and Jews. Yep. Now, the word was previously, they kept it internal to just the Jews. Mm-hmm. So this is the first time that really they reached out to go out into the Gentiles and to the nations. Yep. So this is not just, this is not a neutral space gathering. This is a unclean space and an unclean food. So how is missiology, the mission of God through the people of God, in this case Peter, leading to the study of God theology in this text? Missiology is the study of previous missions. This is like the first mission. Yeah, this is to some degree. I mean, we, we've got an earlier account that we're, we're going to deal with later um, with the Ethiopian eunuch. But how is this leading? Because as the gospel is spreading and missions is being engaged in in some way, shape, or form, how is this leading to theology? New context there being questioned and. Is this okay? Is this what God allows us to do? Is this okay? We must understand God and what he's revealed of himself, in this case through a vision, to understand, so studying what God has for his people. In this case, it's predominantly dietary, but it's also the acceptance of a people not Jewish. So this is a big thing and a big shift and it was a big shift for Peter so much so that he was like no God I'm not doing that um like this was not a simple easy task like you know Jesus like hey walk on water Peter's like got it eat the bacon no way God can't do it and he walks through this so in this case this isn't classic what we think of as classic theology until it begins redefining what it is to be the people of God, which is a major task even today of theology. Who are the people of God? What is the relationship between the Jews and of the Old Testament or the Jewish people and God's church? And they're going to work through some of that. There's another thing that's here, actually. Um, there is pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's presence is what they are using to argue for God's acceptance of them. So, as they are engaging in the task of proclaiming the gospel, they are necessarily becoming better students of theology. It's not that that the doctrine of God has changed. It's not that those things have changed. It's they now know what they need to study, which by and large is what happens as the gospel spreads. People begin to look at and ask hard questions. Often when they encounter other things and other cultures, they begin to ask other questions and realize, hey, there's actually a really good question here. We need to study this and study what God says about it. Study what it shows us about God. Who is the, other than Jesus, who is the greatest missionary in the New Testament? Paul. Paul. All right. Holy Spirit. The Spirit, yeah. Other than the triune God, Paul. Who is the greatest theologian in the New Testament other than the triune God? Wouldn't that be Jesus? Well, other than the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Other than that, who? Paul. Paul. So the greatest human-only missionary, not that you could do missions only on your own, but I'm trying to distinguish here between the Spirit, the All right, the greatest 
missionary is also the greatest theologian in many cases of the New Testament. Missions and theology need to go hand in hand. They need to go hand in hand. Um, missions without theology is a disaster. Theology without missions is incomplete as well because we have a God who has pursued a people like us and who has called us to not only make disciples, but I think when he has pursued us, we ought to be a people who are actively engaging others for his glory as well. Theology and missions go together. They're not, I understand classically they are separate disciplines in the academy in many cases, but when we think theology and we, we ought to be thinking about missions and when we think missions, we really ought to be thinking about theology. Some of the hardest theological questions to ask are the ones that our missionaries encounter. We need to pray for our missionaries to theologize correctly in a culture that is not their own because also like if I get something wrong, you guys look at me funny. If I get something really wrong, you have a congregational vote and you get rid of me, okay? If a missionary gets something wrong to a people that do not have a large background in the Bible, then there's a great problem. So we should expect our missionaries to have a theological background, which is one reason I love the International Mission Board and I love the cooperative program and the way that we gather together pull our funds and support our missionaries in getting an education so that as they proclaim the gospel, they get it as right as they can in the situation that they're dealing with, okay? A person that simply proclaims the gospel but has no theological background and is not growing is not likely to do missions well for very long, okay? Ignorance on fire is not a good way to plant a church, it needs to be good theology, passionately shared in missions. Okay. Another set of rules, Acts chapter 15. Longer passage here, but a very valuable one. And we're going to stop reading tons and tons of longer passages, but we're going to read through this one. So, uh, volunteer, please, verses 1 through 11. I don't know what it is about, like, I can talk all day, but when I read long passages, it just, my mouth goes parched on me. So, 1 through 11, please. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and rake with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathering, gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Okay. So the controversy here is whether or not Gentiles can be saved without becoming marked physically in the flesh like Jews. And those of the Pharisees, Pharisaic background are coming up and saying, hey, no, this has got to happen. And, and Paul's defense is they got the Spirit. Okay? They got the Holy Spirit too. They're believers too. And there's this controversy and they're, they're debating it. And they're going to work through it. So a controversy arises 
people come back and they talk about it. We get a report from the mission field, and then we hit verse 12. Can I get a volunteer or somebody just start verse 12 through 21, please? And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take away from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay, so right there at the end, basically James says, hey, these issues are issues in not just in the city of Jerusalem, but for Jews in all sorts of places because there's a Sabbath and a reading there. He says those things, and he issues a judgment. James, the uh, half-brother of Jesus here, leader of the church of Jerusalem, is the one issuing this decree. But what did he do to support his conclusion? He quoted the Old Testament. So what we have here, the gospel is expanding, missions is happening, they run into a controversy, they come back and gather everybody together, and they talk about it, and they search the scriptures to find a solution. Okay, that's what we've got so far. Verse 22 through 35, one final reading from this. Somebody else, please. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words and settling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So they come to a conclusion based upon searching scripture. Then they agree upon it. The word the language here is that we're of one accord, okay, in verse 25. And then they send the word back out through some respected brothers from Jerusalem. And it's an encouragement to the people on the field. Okay, so the rules here, this is an interesting thing. The, the church gathers, they debate and discuss some things, and they come away with rules that were encouraging rather than placing a great burden. The language of verse 19, my judgments, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Uh, I, I know of a pastor who gives this concept, let's not make it hard. We shouldn't make it extra hard for them. Let's not trouble them with rules that are non-necessary. So they dealt with a problem. There was something happening. There arose a controversy theologically. So they gathered a bunch of people in a city, a leading city. They searched the scriptures. They issued a decree, and the decree went out, and people were encouraged. 
that is essentially the way that the next like 13, 14, 1500 years of church history go in many cases. Theological controversies arise in many cases because of missions and because of, of, of translations issues and they gather everybody up in a city and they debate and they discuss for a time period and they pray through and they search the scriptures and then they send out a word. The church council of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem council is the first of many councils that we will study in historical theology this semester. And some of them are easier to understand the issues than others, and, but we will be walking through a number of theological articulations as a result of councils gathering just as they did at Jerusalem. So for the rest of them, let's see Jerusalem Council as a pattern. not to do is would you say every single one of those was directly set apart from what the pagan practices are in many cases it's set apart just not from the pagan pa- or from the pagan rites um, but also like coming from the jewish background you've got this jewish gentile background um and, and this is interesting because of the way that we're working through romans 13 or 14 right now and beginning 15 on what is likely an issue with food sacrificed to idols. And this language is to abstain from the things polluted by idols. So either Paul disagreed with him, which I don't think he did, or Paul did not see meat sacrificed possibly to idols as necessarily polluted by idols. Which is where I would go with that. um, Abstain from sexual immorality, which was a common thing in their culture. Meat strangled in certain ways, blood and polluted by idols. It's a great simplification of the Jewish law. For Jews and Gentiles to get along in one church and in one area, here's the four things I need you to do. Versus, here's the 613 commands of the Old Testament. We got it down to four. That's a good start. All right, we're not going to read through the epistles to the churches. By and large, many of the letters of Paul to the churches are helping address problems in the churches. Not all. Sometimes through just the articulation of doctrine, but the letters to the Corinthians greatly addressed problems. Um, The letters to the seven churches show problems. So uh, whenever the church is growing in the New Testament or just not growing, there are problems within the church. People are problematic. All of you are. Um, Okay? And there's problems that arise, okay? So the original, let's think back. Who was the original audience? What was the the most likely um, convert to Christianity like at the very beginning? Jewish, okay? By, scholars say by about, by 100. As we're going to enter into the next phase starting next week, you need to think that the average one is a Gentile. Right now, uh, the average person coming to Christ, if we dotted them all over like a map and weighted them, um, it it is probably somebody in Africa. It's like the geographic center, in many cases, of Christianity. It's shifting south. The geographic center of Christianity at this point is shifting south. Uh, It's been like 12 years since I read the book on that, and I think it was by 2025 um, that when we thought of the average Christian in the world, we ought to think of either an African or like a South Asian or an Islander, um, as opposed to what has predominantly been weighted as a, for the last several hundred years, as a Northern European Western religion, is quickly becoming a Southern religion and not just Southern fried, okay? Um, okay? Marks of the early church. What happened in the early church? Okay, there was preaching. The preaching of the scriptures or the devotion, they voted themselves to the apostles' preaching. Doctrine occurred in the gathering, and that was a mark of the early church was the preaching. Okay, baptism. I have there a bunch of references. Um, I'm going to just quickly read through them 
because I think they leave us a weight that sometimes we forget about as Baptists, like just how regularly baptism and church go together. Okay. So, Acts 2, 37, they heard this, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what should we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Okay. Skipping down to verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. There don't seem to be any added that day that were not baptized. An unbaptized Christian would be an alien to the New Testament. Not to our culture, but to the New Testament. And the, the a- only alien that I can think of, and we would have to decide, is this because it was prior to the resurrection of Christ would it be the thief upon the cross. Okay? Unbaptized Christians were aliens in the New Testament. There just aren't those. Now, does baptism save you? No. But do we have unbaptized Christians in the New Testament? I'm not seeing many. Okay? We just see time after time after time. So here we go. Let's continue on. Walking through Acts chapter 8, verse 10. What happens here? In this case, this is in Maze, the people of Samaria. They're saying they all paid attention from the least to the greatest. This man is the power of God that's called great. They paid attention because over a long time they had been amazed with his magic. When they believed Philip. Philip preaches the good news about the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. He was, they were baptized as they believed. All right, verse 34 through 39, Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, Philip's doing his missionary thing, which is what I meant earlier here, okay? Going to the nations, or he's just traveling around, and man, God... This is a supernatural meeting. He's reading from Isaiah. The eunuch says to Philip, about whom I asked, does the prophet say this? Philip opened his mouth, beginning with the scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. So they were coming along the road. They came to some water, and the Ethiopian said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the Ethiopian or the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they finished sprinkling him, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip. No, that is not what the text says. And when he came up out of the water, Why do we immerse? Because we think that the word baptized, oh, it was never moved over in the language, actually means immerse. Because here it does not say he was sprinkled. He came up out of the water, and you cannot come up out of the water unless you go down into the water. Okay? Baptized out of the water. Into the water, out of the water. All right, 917 through 19. Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came and is sent so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. 1047 through 48. Now we've got Cornelius, his household. Okay, 47 to 48 says this. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people, declared Peter, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. 1631 through 34. It's time for the Philippian jailer. Sir, must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord, you will be saved. You and your household, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. They brought him into his house and set food before him. They rejoiced with his salvation in his entire household that he believed in God. Belief and baptism occur. Now, some would say, hey, this is the basis for infant baptism because certainly he had some kids there. But has anybody seen any kids there? Okay, to make an argument for infant baptism because you think he might have had some kids, it's pretty weak. Okay. There's better arguments for infant baptism, but they're not good. But this is not one of them. Okay. All right, 18.8. Crispus, the rule of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Okay, 19, 1 through 5. Paul at Apollos. Apollos had been baptized 
previously into John's baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come. After that, it is Christ. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so there was a case for baptism, understanding Jesus, not just baptism as preparation. For those that understand child baptism or infant baptism as preparation, well, these dudes were prepared, but they got baptized in Jesus when they got Jesus. When they began to understand Christ, they were baptized. And I would suggest probably in the water, out of the water. Baptism happens for believers in the New Testament. An unbaptized believer is an alien. They don't really exist in the New Testament. So we should encourage people with confidence to just search the pages of Acts and see how believers respond to Jesus displaying that through baptism. All right, spent a lot of time there. Early church took the Lord's Supper in a meal setting, but probably separate from the meal. Um, They often gathered on Sunday. It's called the Lord's Day in John. There was a moral emphasis also as part of the early church. Um, Don't be immoral. Abstain from some things. How were leaders appointed? I wanted to spend a little bit of time here as we wrap up. I want to talk about servants in Acts chapter 6. You can go, we're going to go back and look. I'm going to let you read by yourself for a minute. Acts chapter 6, and I want you to tell me who was responsible for the selection and appointment. How were these leaders chosen? Who chose them? How were they appointed? When you're done looking through that text, you can just look up at me and I'll ask us, who did the selecting? Was it the committee on committees? I don't think. Problem arises. People need fed. Got to take care of these widows. How do we feed them? Who gets the responsibility of selecting them? Church. church business meeting. Yep, they had the first church business meeting. Okay, and nobody lied because they had a nice and Sapphira were the chapter before. Okay. Yep. So they gathered everybody. There was a complaint, so they had a business meeting. They appointed a selection crew, which might have actually been the committee on committees here, okay? And the church selected people based upon character. And then who approved it? It's a trick question a little bit. The multitude said what approved. And what they said pleased the whole multitude. They chose Stephen. They presented them to the apostles. So you could say, I I think it's actually a both and here. The apostles confer through the symbolic laying on of hands the, the vestiges or the display of their task being handed to them here. Um, but this is, I think, from the congregation affirmed by the apostles. I think you have both active in the decision-making in a local church. To arise, to when a problem arises, you have a business meeting, you appoint some people, it gets affirmed by leadership on the basis of the congregation. Okay, now let's flip over. So, by the way, um, what type of leaders were appointed there? I, I listed servants, but also did I give you something? Question mark. I don't remember if I did. Deacons. Okay. Most would say that these were the first deacons. Language of being a deacon is not actually used here, but that concept of service is here. So, if I'm remembering right, uh, I don't remember actually where the first term on deacon is. But we do have the word used of deacon for Phoebe in Romans 16. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. All right, so the deacons, we can go with it for a minute. The deacons were appointed to resolve a problem by the church, recognized by the church, laying on of hands by the leadership of the church. Acts chapter 13. 
So we got, we're going to go through three different types of leaders here. Deacons, missionaries. How were the missionaries appointed? Acts 13, 1 through 4. Look through it on your own. Holy Spirit's like. Okay, how, who was responsible for this one? The Holy Spirit. Okay, the Holy Spirit. Yep, verse four is a key verse. They were sent out, not by the church, but by the Holy Spirit. But who else? The leadership of the local church. The leadership there. Like, the Holy Spirit seems to say likely to one of them, and they're like, hey, the Holy Spirit told me. And then they get sent out by the Holy Spirit. It, but it's unclear who the they are that are laying their hands and sending them off if this is just the leadership or the, if it is them. But when we get over to 1427, when they arrive, this is coming back to report, on their mission, they gathered the church together and declared all that God had done with them and how he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Most think that in 14, 1 through 4, you have the leadership of the church, the local church, and the Holy Spirit all sending out missionaries. By the way, churches send missionaries today. Okay, Churches should be sending missionaries, um, not just organizations sending missionaries. And I think this is something that uh, is valuable in the New Testament and something that we ought to be thinking of, and the IMB does reasonably well with on this. Okay, all right. The elders, fourteen twenty-one through twenty-three. They had preached the gospel of the city, had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, "There, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God." And when they had appointed elders from them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. In this case, it does look like it's the leadership. And this may be at the apostolic age, the age of missions here, that they are just appointing leaders. Um, And you may have some other developments with leadership appointments later. But at a minimum, we have a very active congregational church in resolving problems. Acts chapter 15, I did not put this down here. 22, the Jerusalem Council. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders. So here's your leadership. With the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch. So the pattern in the New Testament is congregational and leaders. It is not congregation without leaders. It is not leaders without congregation. So why do we do church the way we do church? Because we think that this is close to the pattern of the New Testament. Why do we do baptism the way we do? Because we think it's close to the pattern. You got some recommended reading to prepare for next week, an article from Jacob. I gave you a book review on one of the recommended resources that I gave, The Rise of Christianity. All right, I'm going to recommend, if you want to study the early church, Michael Green's book, Evangelism in the Early Church, is about 350 pages on how the early church did evangelism, marks of that. Rodney Stark's book is different. It is a sociology look. He's at University of Washington. And he doesn't deny the supernatural, but he looks at many of the sociological factors that were likely occurring in the explosive growth or the exponential or the linear, depending upon how you want to look at it, growth of the church until the time of Constantine. Right? How many of these 3,000 being saved events do we need? Or how did the church grow? How could it have grown? Sociological factors. One of the things that he looks at is the way in which the early church valued women and children and the way that that likely contributed to the rise of Christianity numerically over several hundred years. Some fascinating stuff for those of you that want to look at that. It is not a theological work. Evangelism in the early church is a theological work to some degree, This is a sociological work, and it's kind of a fun look. So I gave you a review of it, and you can look through it.
Any questions before we wrap up? Obviously, you can have lots of questions, theology and missiology in play, but any burning questions for us? Theology and missiology need to go together. And when there is a problem, people gather together, they search the scriptures, and they send out a report. We'll get some more of those reports in the coming weeks. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have adopted us into your family by your grace. Thank you, God, that you love us and that you know us. And God, would we know you and love you and make you known to others. It's in your name we pray. Amen.